Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I'm joined by very special guest David C. Baker, who is the author most recently of The Business of Expertise. In this episode, I speak with David about what the definition of expertise is, what the definition of positioning is, how the two things interact, the pros and cons of vertical versus horizontal positioning, how to deal with conflicts of interest when targeting a vertical, so on and so on and so on. David shares a ton of solid gold advice for folks who are looking to increase their income by becoming a specialist in a particular area. Without further ado, here is my interview with David C. Baker. Enjoy. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really good to be here. I have heard about your show for quite a while, and I know several people who've been guests on it. I thought maybe you'd blacklisted me or something. <laughs> so it's like now, like one of my dreams in life, I can check it off because, you know, I've been a guest on your show. Oh, yeah. A lot of people say it's like going on uh, The Tonight Show. So yeah, really like who your mother says that or <laughs> exactly people yeah. who know what the tonight show is, right? Well, this is just great. I'm super excited to talk today about your book, the uh, business of expertise, but I would love it if you could start off by telling the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So, so I live in Nashville. I'm uh, mid fifties. I've lived here for 20 plus years. I, grew up overseas. So when I was very young, my parents went overseas to Guatemala. Actually, they were medical missionaries. So I lived there from before I could speak until I was 18 years old in this little tribe of, um, of Indians in the upper highlands of Guatemala. So I didn't really have much exposure to the U.S. I came here about halfway through high school, a lot of culture shock, went, through, went to college, then spent about five years full-time in grad school. And in the middle of that experience, decided that I didn't really want to be a professor. There was just way too much political stuff, nonsense in, in academia at the time, for me anyway. And so I decided to do something else, and that something else ended up being an agency. So we started one. We were living in Warsaw, Indiana at the time. Ran that for six years. It was small. It was fairly unremarkable, 16 people. I didn't make great positioning decisions. I made average management decisions, probably above average financial decisions. And through a long series of pretty strange twists and turns, I ended up consulting other agencies. It was somebody else's idea that I do it. And I didn't think anything would come of it, honestly. It was just sort of a lark. But within just like less than six months, it totally took over my life. So that was now almost 24 years ago, next month. And that's what I've been doing under the name of Recourses. It's, it's just me. And what I do is, is basically write, speak, and advise slash consult with independent smaller agencies around the world. Worked with about 900 of them intimately in about 30 countries. Of course, most of my clients are in the US and then Canada, the UK and Australia, some Latin America, some the Far East. So I get to see inside agencies a lot. It's really fun. I love I love my clients. They're just smart, interesting people. And so I've I've dived really, really deep into a very narrow specialization and that's these small independent marketing firms. So that's an overview of what I do. And, and I love it. I still, still really, really engaged in it. Mm, that's great. 
So the, the audience for this show is primarily independent self-employed software developers, which includes dev shops and people who own firms and that sort of thing. Right. And I know that a, a lot of, in fact, it's hard to think of much that doesn't overlap from the audience, the information that you provide to your audience uh, in the business of expertise. I can't think of a, an example that doesn't apply to the folks who listen to this show. Right. So I would love to focus the conversation around the book specifically. I mean, I know you have, I think your fifth book, uh, you've right. mm-hmm. lots of books to talk about, but I'd like to focus on this one. And I just like to tell people, um, give people a little heads up. The book is called the business of expertise. And the subtitle is how entrepreneurial experts convert insight to impact and wealth. And uh, Daniel Pank of all people has this to say, he said, this book is essential reading for entrepreneurs in any field. And I agree 100% with that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it is my fifth book. It's my third good book, but yes, it is my, it is my fifth book. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you which ones are good and which ones aren't. I'd rather you buy them all, but you know, the, the last three are good. Um, and, but this is the first one that's really been a passionate expertise or excuse me, a, a passionate exercise on my part. I just really had a good time writing it and I just felt almost cleansed when I was done because I, I felt like I was, I needed to say some of these things and it was really enjoyable to just get it all out there. Mm. Yeah. I love so, especially that your tough love uh, sort of uh, presentation in many, many parts, I feel the same about that kind of an approach. Lots of people I think just need kind of a swift kick once in a while. Mm. Um, so let's start off at the super basic, right? The the word expertise is in the title. So it must mean something or it probably means something maybe a little bit more specific to you than in general use. So I'm wondering if you could define that for people. Yes, I would define expertise in this context as uh, an expert is somebody that is asked the same question by many people in a way that they're so interested in learning about it that they're willing to pay you for it. Like an expert, an expert is somebody now specifically in the context of this book, I'm talking about an entrepreneurial expert. So primarily somebody who sells their thinking as opposed to their doing, they sell their thinking and they do it in an entrepreneurial environment. In other words, they are taking some level of risk. So they're not working for a big company and there's somebody on staff. This is somebody who either owns or has a significant controlling interest in um, an independent firm and who also sells their thinking for a doing. Uh, they're, they're, yeah, they're thinking for a living. They might also do, and I have no problem with doing. I think doing is a wonderful thing, especially if it's tied to the thinking, but it really is about people who are selling their thinking for a living. Mm, yes. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. I'm always talking about selling your head, not your hands. Right. Exactly. Certainly selling your hands can be lucrative in a sort of long-term revenue way, but profitability wise, if, if people want access to your brain, it's extremely high profit. And I think compared to something like, you know, doing work, especially if you're billing by the hour, the profit margins are insane. I suppose the trick is getting enough revenue at that high profit margin to be able to keep the lights on. Right. Yeah, exactly. And when you look at like what your, your listeners, developers are doing now that they are, that are not doing now that they were doing just 10 years ago, you can see how the marketplace keeps nibbling away at all the things they do, right? Leaving them on this smaller and smaller Island, this Island of thinking. And Mm -hmm. if, 
if they're getting paid primarily for what they're doing, then every year that passes, they lose more and more income opportunity as opposed to like highlighting the value of their thinking or, or maybe even just imagine a developer who has been in some accident and doesn't have hands anymore. Like how, and if we eliminate the voice part of it, you know, how are they going to make a living? How can they, how can they still sell their thinking? So yeah, it's just such a critical concept. And I talk a lot about how positioning needs to be tied to your doing and uh, to your thinking and not your doing. It's just the, that distinction is so critical. Yeah, you guessed my next question, actually, which was, what is the relationship between expertise and positioning? Right, because if we, if we envision the, what you're, you're thinking and you're doing, and we, in, we picture this room with this, this building with two rooms in it, and the smaller room is maybe your thinking and the larger room is your doing, and you're selling this entire building to your clients, and you want them to come in through the thinking door. And if they want to go through the connecting door into the doing room, you're fine with that. But you really want to close off that outside door to the doing room. You want them to all come through the thinking room first, right? And then if you sell them doing, that's fine. If you don't, it's fine. doesn't matter all too much, right? But the positioning decision that you make as either a an independent contractor, freelancer, or a firm, you know, what it doesn't make any difference there. The positioning decision you make has to be built exclusively on the thinking part because the the doing it just it it's really not that valuable except that it's tied to the thinking. You you can replace you can have somebody who's a great PHP programmer, MySQL, whatever HTML5, anything, you know, those are low level things, but even the higher level things, those people don't need to understand strategy if as long as their work is is, you know, being guided by somebody who does understand strategy. So the value of the doing is there if it's coupled to the thinking and your positioning must be tied to the thinking part. That's what is going to last 5, 10, 15 years. The stuff you do for a living is going to change so frequently and you, you can't make all kinds of little short-term positioning decisions around something that's going to change every 18 months. Can't do it. Absolutely. It's very strategic level. It's something that should be changing infrequently and the, one of the benefits that I like to share with people, especially on this show, is that if you, if you aren't, if you do pick a focus of strategy and you, and you say no to shiny object syndrome, and you say, no, I'm going to get good at this. I'm going to get good at solving this problem or whatever your specialty is that, that this expertise stems from, then you can start to build a body of work that isn't going to have a shelf life of six months. You know, I've written a number of books, uh, one in particular that had a, a software version number, number in the title. And I remember as soon as that was released, <laughs> the, the next version of the software came out and I said to myself, well, self, don't do that again. Yeah. Although I bet you used different language, didn't you? When you said that to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was more colorful than that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So how, let me just clarify. I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. I use positioning as a, it's a, it's a, it's a marketing function. I use, I see the word positioning as something that you do in your marketing. Do you use it the same way or are you thinking of it more as something all encompassing? I, 
I have a fairly narrow definition. I'll, I'll just explain how I'm using it, and then we can compare notes. So I think positioning is really about, it describes the space that you occupy that makes you largely not interchangeable with too many other firms. And, and I can quantify what that is, like how many competitors should you have? What's the right number? What's the right range? Like if you have too few, then there's a problem. If you have too many, there's a problem. So you want to be somewhere in that middle range. And positioning um, helps you occupy that perfect spot where you are exchangeable by only a few other firms. That to me is positioning, which leads, and if you answer that question correctly, then it leads to the ability to demand some sort of pricing premium. Because if you withhold your expertise, and that's the only power you have as somebody, in, an expert in professional services, if you withhold your expertise, how difficult will it be for somebody to replace you, either another individual or another firm? And the degree to which it's difficult to replace you is the degree to which you have some control in that pricing relationship. So that's how I understand positioning in that context. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's plenty, there's enough overlap there for it to be functionally the same. Mm -hmm. So you referring a little bit there to uh, availability of alternatives. Right. So I do see, I feel like there's a slight assumption baked in to, to the pricing piece. So I absolutely agree that positioning and, and having basically few options. So in other words, you're the only game in town, so to speak, you know, and when I say in town, I mean, globally, you're the only game in town for this particular thing. Maybe there are a few competitors and you know someone wants that and if they want it badly enough they they you know they don't have a lot of options and sometimes at any price because other people might not be available so the the thing about it that i think is a subtle distinction is that it will give you negotiating power in the relationship to close the deal but i don't think it necessarily gives you pricing leverage because the thing that you i think your your tacit assumption which is true probably 90% of the time is that the thing that you are an expert at is valuable to clients. Right. Because I'm only talking about positioning in the context of something that somebody else is losing sleep over. Exactly. Mm -hmm. If they're not losing sleep over it, it doesn't matter how unique it is. There, there are a lot of experts, even a lot of entrepreneurial experts, that are not making any money. And that's because there's a combination of, of things happening. One, they may not be solving problems that somebody's losing sleep over. Another possibility is that they just aren't any good at pricing their services. They don't understand the equations around pricing. They don't understand how to leverage their control. Or they just simply want the work too much. They could be, and that's the ultimate leverage in my mind, your willingness to walk away from something. If they're a great expert and they're a great entrepreneur, if they want the work badly, then the pricing is almost always going to suffer. So it, it is kind of interconnected. All those things are tied together, I think. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. And I'm glad, and we're in total agreement. So I'm glad I brought that up because I know that there are people in the audience who are like, oh, I'm an expert at and then insert arcane thing that no, no one who is in control of a large budget knows that they care about or actually cares about. Right, right. So, so I think it's an important distinction to say that uh, you want to be expert at something and present it or articulate it in your marketing in a way that people who control large budgets understand. So if you are, geez, I don't even know, you know, um, uh, I could pick it. 
you're an accessible web accessibility expert. You're the, you're one of the top three people in the world. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say lots of big businesses really don't, they should care about it, but they really don't. Yeah. And they perhaps don't even understand it. They, it is always left till last if it's done at all. And mm-hmm. the entire, I happen to know that the entire credit union industry is lobbying Congress to not even have to deal with that. It's cheaper in their minds. It's cheaper to lobby Congress than it is to actually just fix their websites. Yeah. Right. Now you move to Canada. That's a different story. They, Canada is far ahead of the U S in terms of accessibility, but we are so far behind the rest of the world, the rest of the developed world and accessibility. All it's going to take is a couple of well-placed lawsuits. And then all of a sudden they're going to care and mm-hmm. they are going to be losing sleep over it. But at this point they don't care that much. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So I just wanted to call that out. So, uh, another thing that I really love about the book, so positioning is something I talk about a lot because without without a clearly articulated uh, value proposition or difference or focus or some sort of outcome that you deliver without being able to say what that is, like what, you know, if you give me a check for a million dollars, I'm going to give you a benefit or I'm going to give you an outcome that's $10 million. Like if you can't talk in those terms, like, a, you know, an actual business person, uh, it's very difficult to to have any kind of pricing control whatsoever. And that's what I, I typically talk about. So since we talk about positioning so much, uh, I was really excited to hear your, uh, your sort of description of the difference between vertical and horizontal positioning, because I've never heard someone articulate it more clearly. I'm wondering if you could kind of, I don't know if I'm sort of putting you on the spot to share this off the top of your head, but the pros and cons, even a couple, of the mm-hmm. difference between, first of all, what vertical and horizontal positioning are in your definition and what the pros and cons are. Sure. So vertical positioning is the easy one to understand. <clears throat> and that's tying um, the clients that you serve to a particular industry classification. Uh, in the past, it was always an SIC code. Now it's in NAICS code. And so we're talking about healthcare, financial services, tech, whatever it is. And it could be very, very broad, like in some senses, you could divide the entire um, world into two verticals, B2B and B2C. But then normally it's going to be much more narrow than that. Um, So that's vertical. Horizontal positioning is addressing um, either a service offering or a demographic, typically. That's, that's just the summary. There are some smaller nuances there, but generally you're addressing a demographic or a service offering across all those same verticals. So you might be addressing Hispanic marketing needs or uh, reaching an older audience around mobile apps or something like that. Or you could be selling like point of purchase or UX or CRO, something like that. So those would be horizontal positions. Most firms who are facing this tough choice of where they're, how they're going to position their firms will inevitably land, they will prefer a horizontal positioning because the primary advantage of a horizontal positioning is that there's more innate variety in the work because they get Mm -hmm. to touch all kinds of different industries. And in each case, they're, they're facing some sort of a learning curve and they love soaking up all that knowledge about, oh, now I get to learn about race cars. Now I get to learn about um, <laughs> healthcare, whatever it yeah. is, you know? Yeah, the sugar high. So that's, that's the primary advantage of, of horizontal. 
many of them, most of them, in fact, have to default to a vertical positioning because the largest disadvantage of horizontal is that sometimes it's very difficult to find your clients at that particular moment. So they default to a vertical positioning because the primary advantage of a vertical positioning is that you can easily find your clients. You can buy a list. Whether you buy a list or not doesn't really matter. It just, the fact that you can buy a list demonstrates the fact that there is a very easy way to identify them. And you know, there's, there's, there's four advantages to, to vertical. So one of them is that you can buy a list. You can find your clients easily, your prospects. Another is that your clients tend to move to another company within the same vertical, which means that you will, you'll hitch, you'll, you'll hitch along for the ride and, and they'll take you with them to the next client. Another is that the water fountains out there, places where, um, prospective clients gather are generally organized vertically. And finally, there's a little bit more compensation. On the horizontal side, we've talked about the biggest advantage and that's that there's more variety. Uh, next, there are fewer conflicts of interest. Another is that you're a little bit more immune to an economic downturn. And then finally, you can typically work for much larger, more sophisticated, more qualified clients if your positioning is horizontal. So let's say that you focus on a CRO, then you, you're not going to be the agency of record for anybody or the primary development source for anybody. You're just going to be doing a very narrow slice of CRO next to the e-commerce firm, for instance, that has 400 people and you are a six person firm that focuses on CRO. So here you're, there's no expectation that you're going to be the, you know, handle everything this client needs. You're just going to do, you're going to draw the circle around a very small thing that CRO and that enables you to work for a much larger, more sophisticated clients. So that's, that's, you know, that's a simple description of those two. Mm, yes. That's fabulous. It's, that's exactly what I was looking for. It's super clear. It, uh, it doesn't, I, I tend when I'm working with people to lean more toward vertical for them because they're right. usually obsessed with their craft mm -hmm. and feel like obsessing over their craft with all the jargon and, and so forth should attract clients or, or maybe they don't think it should, but that's what they do. Mm -hmm. And to kind of break them out of that habit and sort of make them think a little bit more like, you know, have some empathy for crying out loud with the people who they're asking to write big checks you know, focus on a vertical and convert your, first of all, you, like you said, you'll be able to finally find clients, right? You know, do something proactive instead of just sitting there hoping, you know, hoping you get some more word of mouth somehow. And it forces it, the, the, the thing with the horizontal specialization is that there's a strong temptation, at least with this type of person to just obsess over their craft and, you know, just lovingly describe how sharp their saw is. And it, it doesn't help someone who's trying to build a house recognize that you can help them. Mm. So right. I, I tend to push people toward vertical, but I, I think your description is 100% fair. And I know that a lot of people would rather uh, see themselves as a horizontal, or they, they see themselves as a horizontal expert and they actually are super strong at that they'd feel it feels very very much like tying their hands behind their back if i asked them to say oh, okay now you're going to focus on dentists so right yeah figure out, you know figure out how to talk 
to dentists and, and a little part of them dies when you mm-hmm. say that probably yes, yeah absolutely right yeah. and and i would guess that a lot of the clients there a lot of the folks who listen to the podcast are by definition smaller firms there aren't many 500 person firms probably oh no no no, no. we're talking solos maybe <laughs> maybe up to right. 10 yeah mm-hmm. and so it's easier it's so much easier for them to be horizontally positioned because now they can work for those large more sophisticated clients because they're just biting off one or two specific things that just like i've got i've got clients all up and down the development spectrum and like i've got one client who focuses exclusively on user interface for um, mobile devices and that Mm -hmm. that's all he does and it's a six-person firm and like that's perfect like okay now that's all i need to do so i can i can work for samsung i can work for Apple. I, you know, I can work for big sophisticated clients because I've, I have a very small circle around what I do. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that was me for many years because I, I lucked out and wrote uh, 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 what turned out to be a good book at the exact right time. Yeah. And uh, I was hired by Fortune 50s all over the globe for years. I mean, that lasted for years. But the, th- the thing about it that I like to warn people, and maybe you could comment on this, is from a technology standpoint, which I th- is, I think, a little bit different than UX. I'm totally familiar with UX. I get what you mean. Right. But from a technology standpoint, uh, my de facto positioning because of the book title was around mobile web. Right. You know, so things like responsive web design and phone gap and hybrid apps and that kind of thing. So when that was at the top of the Gartner hype cycle in 2011 or so, I was printing money when it went into the trough and then it plateaued. And then now I'm trying to sell those same high ticket services to the laggards, the late adopters. Uh, It became a much tougher sell. It became a much less interesting engagement because I was dealing with people who really didn't want to do it, but now they were finally, you know, kicking and screaming into the mobile era. Mm. So how, how much do you think that, how much do your clients, how much do they that are horizontal? How much do they have to worry about the popularity, the kind of the the buzzwords around something like UX or CRO? Right. Well, I think focusing on UX is going to be safe for ten to fifteen years. But if we ask the same question around, say, Ruby on Rails, you know, mm-hmm. that um, you know, if if you're a let's say you're a, a five-person firm and you are really good in Ruby or Rails um, and you're going to you're going to have two kinds of clients you're going to have some clients that want to hire a firm that is brilliant in Ruby on Rails and they know that's what you do they know your reputation you're you, you sort of you, you help the community out there you're well known that's exactly why they're hiring you um, and then the other half of your clients are going to hire you and they don't even care all that much what platform you're developing in. I would, if I were in those shoes, I would try to never name specific tools or platform capabilities on my website. I wouldn't hide them if somebody wanted to know what they were, but 
I don't want to skip a beat when we when Ruby on Rails is yesterday's news, which is pretty much true nowadays. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it used to be like, wow, this is the this is the thing like, you know, five, six years ago. Nowadays, it's pretty much yesterday's news. We're looking for the next answer. We want to be as platform agnostic as possible. So if, if you are really good in, say, Acton or Pardot or HubSpot or something like that, you don't ever want to talk about those platforms. You want to talk about marketing automation. And then when you see that curve starting to fall off around marketing automation, you want to start talking about something bigger, like, um, you know, maybe it's uh, account-based marketing or something like that, sales enablement, you know, whatever it is, you want to always be three to four years ahead of that curve. So what terrifies me is anybody who's publicly attached to somebody else's platform or development environment and it's so easy for tech technical people to do that and to be so proud of their expertise but it's just you're basically mortgaging your own future it's it's basically like writing your blog on linkedin all the time and then linkedin changing the rules and now all of a sudden they're not going to post your blog up there you know it's just it's a really dangerous place to be in but it doesn't catch you often enough to terrify you so you keep doing it right Mm-hmm. Right. The cycle can be kind of long, like it was with me with mobile. And, and I'll, I'll be 100% honest. I rested on my laurels. I thought the, it was right. never going to stop. And mobile, you know, I was like, oh, mobile's always going to be a big thing. Yeah, I was right about that. But guess what? Now, SAP and IBM and, you know, Deloitte, they all have hundreds of, you know, I don't even know what you call them. I guess they call them consultants. You know, hundreds of, of people on these giant teams that are taking all the enterprise gigs, which is where my bread right. was buttered. Right. And, and it was like, well, what have I done? I haven't written a book lately. And, you know, it's, it's like the work is still out there, but the pond got enormous and my, me, the fish stayed the same size. So I was a big fish in a small pond for a while. And right now, if you have things like blockchain expertise or machine learning or uh, virtual reality or augmented reality chops, you can print money and, and that's great. And it will probably, all of those things will probably always be a big thing but recognize that the pond is going to grow around you. It's going to get right. bigger and bigger and bigger. And unless you are, you know, and eventually the big boys are going to come in and those, they will appear to be the safe option to right. compared to you in the future, right. unless you, you know, unless you go that route. But yeah. And, and that, you know, can I mention too, that, that you've put your thumb right there on, on a really important point and that's how much more important it is to be positioned well as a really small firm because there are some things that clients will trust to smaller firms. Development is not one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are terrified about, and because you're, you're usually doing something that's not six weeks. It's going to be much longer. It's mm-hmm. much more in-depth. If things hit, you know, if they hit the fan, there's going to be a lot more of a mess to clean up and you don't have a deep bench. So, the the idea of not being well positioned as a small development shop is almost ludicrous because people are terrified as it is you have to give them a really strong reason to use you because they they want to use you but they they almost feel forced to take the safer option which is the bigger firm mhm yep 100% and I, I i've heard the exact words that you've just used deep bench come out of plenty of people's mouths. Well, we want someone with a deep bench. All right. I'm not, that's not me. 
Yeah. Uh, it used to be that, you know, I was like the brain that they rolled into the room and they, you know, I would just sort of sit there like an Oracle and they would say, what about this? What about this? Should we have lots of little apps or one big one? And, you know, and cause there was just no one. Cause it was at the very beginning of the curve. There were maybe three people in the world who were on this, on that train from the beginning. And, and mm -hmm. dear listener, if you are poo pooing, anything we're saying here because you just feel like, oh, blockchain will never go away. I promise you on a, you know, it'll be, it'll be 10 years probably before that's just utterly boring, but it'll go through the trough of disillusionment where nobody wants to touch it with a 10 foot pole. And, and you'll be like, wow, where'd all the work go? And right. where'd all the VC money go? Right. And then it'll come back up and it'll be, you know, it'd be like the people who are, yeah, they're sort of blase about it, but yeah, I guess we have to do this. Right. So, exactly. I could not agree more with the with the stance of not hitching your cart to somebody else's platform. Uh, it's it's not it's not that much different than putting a version number in a book title. You know, it's <laughs> right. You've had some experience concept. with that, yeah. And there there are some really bad examples of this where they are they're making this choice. I'll tell you, Drupal is the worst. Uh, when I <laughs> when I see how how firm, I don't mean it's the worst application. I, it's a great application, but when I see firms making a mistake of hitching to another platform, the Drupal folks are the very worst here. They there's <laughs> going to be a special place in purgatory for people that hitch their wagon to Drupal. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah, I could see this. I mean, I see people doing it with Facebook ads too, or fa just Facebook stuff. Yeah. You know, just like, oh, we're going to, you, you said it about LinkedIn and, and Facebook just announced, you know, news, you know, public publishers who have fully embraced Facebook are now like, um, whoops, now what? Yeah, they just changed, changed the rules. Like Huffington Post just a week ago decided, okay, no outside bloggers. And, and that's, that was, for some folks, that was their entire marketing platform. Like you, mm -hmm. you have to own you have to own your own stuff, right? Whatever that is, whether it's the platform, whether it's your insight, whatever it is, you've got to create your own future, no matter how terrifyingly slow that is to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you publish all your stuff on Medium and you in like, oh, okay, no, it's fine, Jonathan. I've got a local copy of it. I could publish it on my own blog later. That's not what they own. They own the traffic. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And Medium is a, it, you know, you're not going to get penalized by Google to republish your stuff on Medium. That's the advantage of doing it and just takes a few seconds. But Medium is not in it for you. They are going to pull the plug on this at some point. For one thing, it's overrun with people that it, it's, it's almost as bad as LinkedIn now. You know, it's just the, the signal to noise ratio just simply isn't there unless you just have hundreds of thousands of followers. So mm. own, own your own stuff. Mm hmm. Excellent. Um, you mentioned something earlier that I'd love to loop back to. Uh, we, we are, where's my timer? It feels like, it feels like we're probably, I probably can't keep you too much longer. So I wanted to make sure to get this in. Um, you mentioned one of the objections to vertical positioning is conflict of interest concerns from your clients. Right. I, I do get that sometimes from, I've never gotten that from a client. But I do sometimes get that from students who that's an objection like, well, you know, what if I sign an NDA or aren't they going to be nervous that I'm sharing information? Uh, I've always, it's always been a benefit to my clients to me, you know, when I work with people, they're like, oh, well, you know, without, without breaking any NDAs, obviously, like what, what's happening in the industry from a tech standpoint, you know, if we're talking about credit unions, credit union CEO has got a lot of other things to worry about other than technology. And a lot of them don't have a CIO or a CTO. Right. So they need someone like me to come in and they're like, and they're totally comfortable with the idea that I'm thinking about broadly about technology 
in you know sort of digital transformation and, and mobile innovation and that kind of thing. I'm thinking about it broadly, but with a specific eye toward the credit union industry. And I've never had anybody throw the sort of conflict of interest thing in my face from a client standpoint. It's always people who are considering a vertical position who are like, well, won't all my clients think that I'm sharing their secrets? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have expected to hear that. So that's particularly interesting for me to hear. I Clients are, they're nervous about conflicts of interest, conflicts of interest, but they're flat terrified of incompetence. And <laughs> I, and they're more terrified than they are nervous. So, you know, my clients, you know, there's ter- like, when I think about my business, I'm not like, I, I wouldn't be in your audience normally. I'm, I'm a consultant mm-hmm. to the same kinds of firms. And, you know, the potential for conflict of interest is really significant for me. I was talking with somebody um, who's in Austin yesterday, and I said, you know, I have consulted intimately with 22 firms in Austin alone. And, and she, you know, she was impressed by that. She wasn't scared and she wanted to know who they were. So I just named them for her. You know, it's like, how in the world am I going to be an expert unless I've worked with, with these firms? And if somebody is nervous about my ethical reputation, they shouldn't even hire me. I mean, I've worked with 900 firms. There are going to be all kinds of firms that I work with that are, that are in competition with one another and so on. But I would think that with your readers, the conflict of interest issue is even less important because the, the strategy is, is at a different level. It's just as strategic, but it's not so much a business case as it is a, an execution case. And I, um, I just don't see it happen very much. Um, the, the very best firms out there have a conflict strategy. Now, the more strategic your work is, the higher up you are on the ladder, the more conflict um, can be the case. But nowadays, there are so many fractured firms out there that you can work up and down that, that industry if it's vertical um, or across if it's horizontal and never run into a conflict of interest. So I find that people throw that conflict of interest flag up, but it's often a false flag. It doesn't, I really don't hear it all that much from clients. Mm. Yeah, it's funny because you, the object, the, the, the thing that I tell folks to say if they do ever get that objection is like, look, if you don't trust me, we aren't going to be able to work together. Right. So there, at a certain point, there's a leap of faith. And if, if I haven't projected uh, my authority in a way that is causing you to trust me, then my bad. But I, I literally can't help you if you don't trust me because you won't do what I, what I recommend. Right. Yeah. And I hate you, by the way, and you're ugly and your kids are ugly. And yeah. Oh, no, wait, never mind. I got carried away there. <laughs> yeah. I do recall saying to, I, I do, maybe I did have this happen once because I recall saying to someone, I was like, look, you're a huge company and I'm a solo operator. You could ruin my entire business with one blog post. Right. You know, yeah. so, uh, you know, you could put me out of business with one blog post because my whole business is based on trust. So if, if you don't trust me, then fine. I, it, someone must have said that to me at some point because I remember having that conversation. Yeah. Either that or it was just a bad nightmare you were having or something. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. What, what did you mean when you said working up and down a vertical? So let's say you are working, let's say you're focusing on dentists, like that kind of the silly example we were throwing around earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, one so one initial strategy you could have is okay i'm gonna i'm gonna build websites for dentists marketing oriented websites for dentists okay now i'm only going to take one dentist in any given msa that would be one way to, to structure it or 
um, I require all of my clients to sign a three-year agreement and it will be kind of a constantly evolving website. There'll be a, a fixed monthly retainer. And if you only want to work, if you only want me to build the site and then I'm gone, then I'm going to hang on and I'm not going to lock up this MSA. I'm going to wait until somebody wants to work with me for three years. Or you could work up and down the food chain. So you could work, you could work with um, somebody who's like supplies um, recruiting services to dental offices, somebody who who uh, builds referral networks, somebody who sells all the expensive equipment for cosmetic dentistry, somebody, an architect who focuses on dentists. So, so I'm just saying you could pick, usually there's 20 to 30 of those sort of up and down the food chain, but still related clients, none of which would represent a conflict of interest. That's what I meant. Mm, yes. I, I, don't, I think I might've made this up. I usually refer to those as adjacent businesses. So like yeah. almost like suppliers to the vertical. Sure. Right. Where they have to understand the same industry that you're trying to um, uh, solve for the conflict of interest issue. Right. Like all of, all y'all will be probably presenting at the same conference or, you know, at least at the trade show. Right. Mm -hmm. But you're right. all in the same kind of ecosystem around dentists. Right. Right. Mm. Fabulous. So this has been amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I urge people who are perhaps alarmed by our uh, violent agreement about not hitching your cart to a particular platform, you know, whether it's Rails or Facebook or what have you, uh, I urge you to run out and get a copy of The Business of Expertise by David C. Baker. Uh, it's a great book. And, and honestly, it's not that... It's not that long. It's just jam-packed. It's dense. It's dense with great information. Dense. Wait a second. What does dense mean? Like <laughs> stupid dense or, or, or concentrated? compact? You okay. prefer concentrated? Concentra yeah, that's better than dense. Yeah. Okay, yes. You're like a, you're like a, a reduced sauce. Yeah, right. Thank you. <laughs> and I love that you have, there's, I think it's three foundational sections at the beginning. Right. Uh, foundational chapters, right. Three mm -hmm. short ones. And then 16 chapters that build on that. I just, as I was writing it, I was thinking, ah, oh, man, this is like a three-legged stool. Mm. I need to, I need to write it this way. So it's, it's, uh, it was a lot of fun to write. It was a lot, I was intending it to be about three times the length when I started it. And even I was getting bored. So I decided I would <laughs> really concentrate it more, uh, make it more dense, as you say, and make it a, a lot easier to digest. And it's designed so you can read a chapter in just a few minutes, think about it, and then come back to another chapter the next day if you want. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not a bunch of opinion, like sort of shouted down from the ivory tower. This is you. You did a lot of research, and it's based on a lot of real world data. And in fact, if I don't, if I remember correctly, there's a section where that basically exists because you couldn't, you couldn't. Um, reconcile your opinion with what you saw as the reality. And that was, I think, a piece about sort of maverick owners. Right. Yeah. I've, I've always felt like I'm more of a scientist than I am an expert. And so I, I'm obligated to follow wherever the data takes me. And, and in this case, the data was taking me somewhere uncomfortable. So I needed to look at it a little bit more. And so I write about that in the book as well. Yeah, it's just great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, David. Is sure, there, thank you for having me. Sure. Where can people go to find more, um, find out more about you online? Uh, so my consulting practice is recourses.com, R-E-C-O-U-R-S-E-S.com. Uh, the book, there's a microsite for the book. You can download a free sample and so on and, and kind of look behind the scenes at the writing process. That's expertise.is, expertise.is. 
And um, of course, the book's available on Amazon as well. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Appreciate the invitation, Jonathan. Hey, anytime. Love to have you back at some point. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about how to ditch hourly billing, please go to valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free email course. Again, that URL is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Thanks. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.